Hi, I'm Sum Queen from San Francisco. Um, let's see, uh, 20 minutes. Well, my um, journey into recovery uh, started in 2013. I uh, was in a place in my life where I had nowhere else to go. Um, I had ruined all of the relationships um, in my family and I, uh, I, when I had a drink in each hand, I thought it would be a really good idea to go to rehab, to run away from all of those problems. Um, so I chose one that was, uh, I was living in Houston at the time, and I chose one that was in Austin, Texas. And uh, it was far enough away that it felt like the problems, uh, I could get away from those, but not too far away that family couldn't come see me, um, because I still needed, uh, still needed that connection. Um, I, I don't know if you've, if you've been to rehab, maybe you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, it's basically summer camp with a bunch of really fucked up other people. Um, it's a lot of fun, but it's, um, it's really messy at the same time. Um, I, my first, so my first time in rehab, I, um, I had an amazing experience. It was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun, and I met some really amazing people. I, um, uh, anyways, um, what I, what I didn't understand though was that I, um, I didn't fully work the steps. I thought that if I could just stop drinking, everything else in my life would fall fall together, like fall into place. Um, so after getting out of rehab, very quickly, all of my character defects started coming back. Um, I was going to meetings and going through the motions, but I just, one of the things I really remember was there was this lady in the rooms that would tell the same story in every meeting. And, I, and as soon as she would open her mouth, it'd be like, fuck, there's Janet again with that same fucking story. And, um, and so I stopped going to meetings because I, I, I got tired of hearing the same fucking stories. And um, so I got further and further away from the program. And um, if, if you could even say that I was in the program. But um, I, um, so I ended back, I uh, ended, ended up relapsing. Um, and for me, I really do feel like I needed that, um, that extra venture into um, that extra research to see just how miserable life can be. Um, I made it back into I made it back into the rooms, and um, this time I had a level of desperation that I didn't know existed, um, and I needed I needed to be broken down to be able to finally surrender. Um, so what the difference was is I. Um, I immediately surrounded myself with people in the program and I stopped separating my, what uh, I stopped looking at the differences and started finding the similarities. Um, I also had a sponsor who insisted that I be uh, involved in a lot of service. Um, service is where I found, um, I found friendship and I, um, uh, I had something to do and something to look forward to. Um, I ended up 
um, I was living in sober living, and they asked me if I wanted to be a house manager for a gay men's sober house in Austin, Texas, and I, um, I accepted. Uh, it was one of the biggest blessings I think I've ever had. Um, working with or living with a bunch of gay men in early sobriety is super challenging. Um, and I, um, I wouldn't trade that time for anything. I, um, I learned so much about myself and other people. Um, I finally learned that I could have a platonic relationship with another gay man and I didn't, have to, um, I didn't have to sleep with him for his approval. That was something that took me 30 something years of my life to learn. Um, before, before that experience, men were just, they were just objects to fill time with and I treated them that way. Um, so I was, wasn't able to hold on to any real relationships. Um, so a blessing in this program has been able to show me how to have a real relationship with another gay man. Um, I also got to learn about my, uh, I got to learn that in 30 years, I never learned how to give away anything without conditions. Um, and it all started with the fucking cupcake. Like I, um, as a house manager, I had a, I had a little bit of an ego still that I was working on, but I wanted them to view me as like the best house mother. So every month I would make, um, we would have a celebration, uh, like a milestone celebration and I would. I would bake something, and that month was um, watermelon cupcakes. So I decided, I spent all day making these watermelon cupcakes for these bitches. And, um, and they were beautiful. Like, they were green cake with watermelon icing and like the mini chocolate chips for seeds. I worked really hard on them. And being a house full of gay men, each one ate one cupcake, and all of a sudden they were stuffed. So I had a shit ton of watermelon cupcakes left. Um, there was, a, there was a client in the house who was trying to integrate himself into the, into the community. And one of the ways he was doing that was by buying candy to put out on the, on the counter for people to just grab. Um, it, was, it was interesting, but he didn't have a lot of money, and so he was buying that discount candy that wasn't individually wrapped. And that week it was gummy bears. Um, and so they'd been out on the counter for a few days, and they were nice and hard. Um, and so he decided to put a gummy bear on each of my watermelon cupcakes. And inside, I died a little bit. And I was like, how dare he do that to another man's cupcake? <laughs> um, but I was spiritual, and I was the house manager, and I was somebody that he could look up to. So I didn't say anything, right? I went to bed, and I woke up the next morning, and I'm outside smoking a cigarette. And I'm like, that motherfucker. How dare he? So I finally call my sponsor. My sponsor's like, he lets, me go through the, he lets me go through the whole story. And he finally goes, well, I didn't hear, all I heard was my cupcakes in that story. He's like, the only thing that, that you did was you made some cupcakes. And the only thing they were allowed to do was shit and, to eat them and shit them. Um, and so I got, to, I got to do a lot of work around unconditional giving. Um, had I not been in this program, I wouldn't have realized that everything that I gave to people had some kind of string attached to it. Um, it, 
this program has been able to, as cheesy as it sounds, like I get to peel back all the different layers of the onion that's me. And um, I continue, I continue to find things about myself that I get to work on. Um, I, I moved from Austin to California uh, a year ago. I, I landed in Huntington Beach with a friend and, um, and immediately got connected to the people in recovery. Um, they welcomed me and um, it, was, it, was, it was something special to be able to go from, from one state to another let them know that I was new and pass out my number and have complete strangers call me and ask me what I was doing that day and if I wanted to go somewhere, um, just so that I didn't have to feel alone. Um, so I stayed in Orange County for three months while I was trying to figure out what to do and um, came, to, came to San Francisco, um, immediately got integrated with the sober community here and it's been it's been, it's been amazing to have, again, a community that welcomes somebody like me who um, is just now learning to have relationships with other people <laughs> in the world. Um, you, let me, you let me say inappropriate things and you gently remind me how inappropriate they are. Um, and so I get to learn how to be a better me. Um, and you still call me the next day. Um, you still invite me places. And I, um, I get to work with an amazing sponsor. Um, every time I've, every time I've talked to him, it's, um, He puts a spin on things that I, um, I didn't see before, and um, I'm very grateful for that. Um, I'm excited to see where this, um, I'm excited to see what tomorrow brings. Um, I, I, get to, I get to wake up and, 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 and be the best version of me today. Strive to be the best version of me today. I, um, um, yeah, I don't know. How many, like how much longer do I have? Nine minutes. Holy fuck. Okay. Um, nine minutes. Well, let's see. Um, So, um, a God moment for me was coming back into this program. I, um, I had split up from my drug dealer soulmate, and um, <laughs> I, because I kind of, I kind of had a realization one day that my life, when I was using, was very mediocre. Um, nothing good ever happened. I couldn't hold a job. My, my drug dealer soulmate, even though I loved him, um, his, like, he was not the greatest looking guy. Like, I could do better than that, you know? Like, I could do better. Um, and so I, I realized I had this very mediocre life. And I, since I had already tasted 
what sobriety was like. Um, I, I, I got to have a little bit of a pink cloud experience with my summer camp excursion and, and rehab. And I wanted, I wanted that back. And so, um, so I made the decision that day that I wanted, to, I wanted to stop using and I wanted to get clean. And so I reached out to a very good friend who, when I went out, told me that I, um, when I was ready to stop using, that I could call him. And so I did. Um, he picked up the phone and he said, well, I can't, he said, meet me tomorrow night um, at, you know, at the, at the clubhouse and we'll, um, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, that night, my uh, drug dealer soulmate, without knowing anything that was going on, kicked me out of the apartment, um, so I had nowhere to go. I was, um, I was homeless, and I had nothing. Um, I had nothing. So, um, so I, met my, I met my friend at the clubhouse the next night, and within 24 hours, I was back in rehab on a full scholarship. Um, so I stayed another 90 days in, in rehab. Um, this time around, it wasn't, it wasn't like summer camp. There was, um, I, there was a day when I, I wanted to leave so bad that, um, that I went up to the, I went up to the, the, the little watchers station, you know, the people who watch you and take notes. Um, I went up to their station and I told them that they needed to bring me my matching grocery bag luggage because I was leaving that day. Um, luckily I didn't, but, um, but that was like, I, that was my second experience with rehab is it was, I didn't want to be there, but I knew I needed to be there and I had nowhere else to go. Um, and, and I, but I still had this like indignant mindset. Like here I was gifted with a full scholarship into this rehab at this beautiful like artist commune. <laughs> like it was just beautiful. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to storm off with a broken high heel, you know, like um, ridiculous. But, but I stayed and, um, and I didn't get that pink cloud experience, but I got something greater. I got a shift in my perspective um, of recovery. When I got out of rehab, um, my drug dealer soulmate uh, decided that he would give me some of my property back um, in these plastic bins. And, and there was two of them. And the first one that we looked at, there was two loaded syringes of meth that the sober house manager, um, the sober house manager helped me get rid of. And um, went through the rest of it, didn't really find anything else. Um, at that point, I decided that I was gonna move from Austin. All the, so I packed all my stuff up in the car and was headed out of Austin and got pulled over for an expired registration sticker. And um, the cop, I had, a, I, had a new st I had a new sticker, I just hadn't put it on. The cop, um, after I explained about the new sticker and why I looked so different in my ID, the reason was that I had been to rehab twice, once for alcohol, once for math. And in rehab, we did CrossFit six days a week, so of course I looked different. <laughs> 
Um, he asked if he could search my vehicle, and I was like, sure, go ahead. And in one of those plastic bins was more meth from the drug dealer soulmate. So that day I got a felony possession charge while being um, just over three months sober. And um, there was, I, I really do feel like it was a God moment because something inside of me fully accepted the life that I was gonna be living if I didn't change. Um, I went through the drug diversion court and I needed that level of accountability for that first year. And I'm so grateful that I got the opportunity to have that. Um, that kept me sober for that first year. And because I was sober, I got to manage a gay sober house and I got to learn that I never learned how to give anything unconditionally because of a fucking cupcake. So, thank you. Should we let you speak? I doubt it. All right. I just drew a blank on your name. I didn't know. I don't know why, but I'm more nervous than they are. <laughs> and now we have Anthony. Um, Anthony Attic Alcoholic. Hi, everyone. Um, Alex, thanks uh, for asking me to speak. And James, thanks for sitting next to me. And David, thanks for sitting next to me. Um, and thanks to my friends that are in the audience. Um, it's really good to see everyone. Um, okay. So, where to start? So, I'm recently back from a relapse. Um, I was a few days shy of celebrating six years um, before I went out. And the biggest difference between then and now is um, that something finally clicked, right? And we read about that in the big book, and, and most shares you hear that. And I can remember I was sitting in my living room, and I was um, uh, smoking weed, and weed was like never a part of my story, which is really interesting. So I was sitting in my living room, and I was smoking weed, and my best friend at the time says, uh, Anthony, aren't you sober? And I'm like, um, well, yeah, I am. And he says, like, then why are you smoking weed? And I was like, well, it's legal, so it's not really the same thing. And so at some point, the conversation started to get real. And he says to me, um, okay, sure, Anthony, but... Um, look at the way you're eating and look at the way like you've been hooking up with people and look at all these other things that are going on in your life. Look at the way you're spending money. And so something finally clicked um, and it hit me. I'm like, wow, this is pervasive. There's no other part of my life that exists where addiction isn't showing up. And I can remember sitting in my living room and crying and crying and crying and crying and just repeating over to, and over to myself, wow, this is real. This is an actual thing. Um, and so I'm really grateful uh, for that moment. I think it was at that time when I finally decided, like, actually, I didn't decide. I don't, I don't want to believe that I made a decision. Um, but when I was sitting in my living room, what occurred to me was every single thing I had ever heard in the rooms. So finally, started, things started to make sense. Um, one of the things that kept coming up for me was, 
um, everything you tried didn't work, so try something new. And suddenly, the 90-day thing made sense to me. And suddenly, the sponsor thing made sense to me. And so I reached out to my friends who didn't abandon me because I was out. And I told them, uh, so I've been smoking weed, and I've been popping pills, and I've been doing all this stuff. And so they said, that's fine. Like, just meet up with us um, at the Castro Country Club. And so I remember sitting next to my friend Chaz. Um, I think Ray was there, but I was sitting next to my friend Chaz, and we were listening to this speaker. Her name was Alice. And after uh, the, her share was done, he says to me, um, did you like her share? And I was like, I mean, it was cool. Like, I didn't, I wasn't really like moved by her. I wasn't like impressed by her. And in fact, I probably wasn't paying attention most of the time. And um, so we walk up to her and he says to her, um, do you work with gay men? And she says, well, I've never before, but I'm open to it. And so he turns to me and he looks at her and he goes, well, this is your new sponsee. And, and I looked at him and I was like, and in my head, I'm like, you're not fighting anymore. You're not making decisions for yourself anymore. Just trust this. And so she turned to me and she's like, I feel like I'm being forced onto you. And I'm like, it's cool. Um, so, <laughs> um, and she reached into her purse and she gave me a newcomer chip and I almost fucking lost it. Um, I think the reason why I almost lost it is because I'm like, here's this fucking stranger who doesn't know me, who's like doing this like really beautiful, generous thing. Uh, okay. So I finally met up with her and she's like really hardcore. She's like this punk rock chick. And uh, she's like, well, you know, if we're going to work together, I work a really serious program, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And she's like, I need you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days and call me every day and all of that other shit. And I was like, I can do that. And um, what I told myself after leaving that conversation with her is like, I'm not going to fight. Whatever happens, I'm not going to fight. And if I feel something, I'm not going to believe it. And that was really important to me because every morning I woke up, I didn't want to fucking call her. And every morning I woke up, I didn't want to go to a meeting, but I just did it because I was done fighting. Um, so finally, we jumped into step work. I'm meeting with her regularly. Um, and as is said in the big book, and in 12 steps before I was halfway through, uh, it, well, shit started to make sense. And so I remember I started picking up service commitments and... I remember when we got to the third step, and I think it was around the third step where I realized, like, I don't have to do anything by myself. I actually don't have to do anything at all. And if I'm truly doing the third step, if I'm truly giving, turning things over to God, I have nothing to worry about at all times. And that sounds really simple. And um, as is my nature, I make things really complicated. And so I would constantly have to return to this idea. If I'm truly turning things over to God, I have nothing to worry about. And so every single moment I was like stressed out or I had a decision to make, I'm like, you know, I'm just turning this over. Just pray for God's will for me and to have the power to carry that out. So, um, so started picking up service commitments. I jumped back into living sober because I'd been away for a while. Um, just as an aside, living sober has been a part of my sobriety since the very beginning. Um, and that's really important to me because I think living sober is where I actually found my family. It was the first time I felt integrated. It was the first time I felt valued. Um, it was the first time I felt useful. Um, it's where I met one of my longtime friends, Ray, who's in the audience. Um, 
and it became really important to me. And I remember in the very beginning, I was like a really shady kind of like participant. I didn't really always do things, you know, like I always relied on other people to get shit done. And, um, but no one threw me out, you know, people were still like really forgiving of me. Where to transition to at this point? Um, okay, so my life right now. So I live a really, really good life. Um, I remember I heard this speaker share in San Jose, and uh, her famous line was like, she went from the pole to professor. So she used to be the stripper, and then she became a professor. She's from Texas. And, um, and that always, uh, that stood with me, because what she was talking about is that when she was younger, she had every reason to drink. So she was like, I was raped, I was given up by my family, I had all, I was doing drugs, uh, people abused me regularly, I had all the reasons to drink. And she reminded everyone in the audience, but that's not why she drank. Um, I've always thought, or at least where I'm at in my sobriety, right, my sobriety right now, is like the worst thing an alcoholic can have is a reason for anything. Because a reason, at least for me, allows for me to hold on to a grudge. A reason allows for me to be trapped into my own mind. Um, and reasons are really seductive, right? So if you come from a bad childhood or if you have trauma, it's really seductive to hold on to those things as reasons why you drank or reasons to do anything. Um, I am a professional at holding a resentment toward people that I've never met in my life, right? I can go to a meeting and I can hear someone or they'll look at me the wrong way and immediately I'm like in my head and I take that home for like a few days and um, and I develop a reason not to go back to a meeting. In fact, there's a meeting on Tuesdays that I haven't gone to in like half a year because someone had this like really shitty share. And <laughs> I was so fucking mad and I text all my friends and I was like, I'm not going back to that meeting. And sure enough, I actually, uh, this is kind of, um, it's just occurring to me, there was a, a newcomer in that meeting that I met uh, who I absolutely loved. Uh, his name was Reed and uh, he took his life uh, last month. And... Uh, that to me is really bizarre because I've never experienced that before. I've never like stood in front of someone and can remember holding them and then like hearing they took their life, right? Um, that was really serious to me and I think that highlighted to me that this really is a terminal illness and that like the smallest things can actually lead to that. Um, resentments, at least for me, are really deadly. Uh, I think it's also important to share that every single relapse that I've ever had has involved some type of guy. Well, a guy, not some type of guy. And this last one, uh, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, I was dating this guy who was, um, he was in his early 20s, which is like bad news bears for me because um, I'm in my 30s. And like, what do people with a 10-year gap have in common? Um, I'm sure they have a lot in common. We didn't. And... Um, I was convinced that because we had the same birthday, our relationship was going to work. And <laughs> true story. Um, so we had the same birthday, and I was like, you know, this is really going to work out, and this is like a good story to tell people, and we'll celebrate our birthdays together. And um, and so, <laughs> um, so he would. Uh, so this guy would come over, and like I would notice that slowly but surely, like I was slowly losing myself. And this has happened in every single relapse that I've ever had. I slowly was losing myself, um, despite like how confident I would like my friends to believe I am. Whenever I'm with a guy, like all of that shit slips away. Like I lose every ounce of confidence. Um, I become really small and insignificant um, because I just want someone to love me back. 
and so I was dating this guy. Uh, he would show up high to my house all the time. Like uh, he would wake me up at 2 a.m. And the reason why he was able to wake me up at 2 a.m. is because I put his number on emergency bypass. So even if my phone was off, like his calls would come in. Um, it's madness. And so he would come over and he was high and like uh, we would mess around. And this is what it went like for a while. And then um, at some point he says to me like, hey, I don't really want to be committed to you. And I was like, oh, I don't want commitment, which is not true. Like I wanted a relationship. I was like, oh, me either. Like it's totally cool. We can like mess around with other people. It's fine. Um, which is like not part of my nature at all. Like I'm actually, I've realized in sobriety that I'm actually quite a monogamous person, which seems like not very um, popular, uh, which is, anyway, that's a whole other thing. So I was, <laughs> dating's hard in the Bay. Um, so he, uh, so I was realizing that he and I did not have very much in common. Um, but he smoked a lot of weed. And so I think in the back of my, my mind, I'm like, well, you know, if I start smoking weed, like this is something he and I have in common. Um, and I was tired of telling him, like, oh, I'm sober, I can't smoke. Um, and so one day he, like, uh, whatever, I started smoking. He had, like, some fucking bong that we'd leave at my house, and I, like, started smoking with him. And, and I hate smoking because it makes me really paranoid, but I was like, I'm willing to endure. I'm willing to be uncomfortable because this is going to solidify our relationship. Um, at some point, the story ends that he, like, broke my heart, and I was, like, super fucking devastated, and I'm crying for days and, like, swearing off I'm never going to do this again. And... Uh, but once he left, I was still smoking pot. I was like, now I was smoking pot every day. Now I was smoking pot every like four hours. And now I'm popping pills. And now I'm hooking up like five times a day. And like, so everything was spiraling. So he was gone, but I still had my fucking mess with me. Um, and then I had that moment in my living room where uh, my friend Mark is like, you know, things look really ugly. Uh, so. My life right now is actually pretty incredible. Um, my sponsor reminds me that, uh, you know, if we work the steps, as a result of working the steps, that we get to have a life that's beyond our wildest dreams, and that's definitely my story. Um, you know, I don't come from money. I was, like, born and raised in the projects. Um, there's zero, uh, like, professional success in my family at all, and I've managed to... Uh, move really far away from that. Like, I, I have a really successful life. I'm a fourth-year doctoral student in clinical psych. Um, I'm co-enrolled at USC. I graduated from Berkeley. So I have all these different things that are not by my own doing. I just like to believe that God chose me to have these things because that's just how I'm used in this world. Um, my profession is that, so I'm, my prof I'm a psychologist in training, and so one of the things I absolutely love about my job is that I get to connect with people regularly. And as a result of doing this work, what I've realized that it has done for me is that it has um, uh, it's established a standard for connection uh, for me that I demand in all of my interactions, right? So if I'm respecting myself in a certain way, uh, in the way that like a patient might like defer to me or rely on me for support and for them to keep them secure, <clears throat> if I'm also doing that for myself, there's no room for me to have shitty people in my life. It becomes the, the standard by which I allow people into my life changes drastically. And my barometer for things that are unhealthy um, is actually quite sharp. Um, what I'm most grateful now, I think, for now uh, in my sobriety are all of my different relationships. As has been said, like, I'm realizing I can have platonic relationships with other men and that it is also okay to have an active sexual life. Um, I share that just because like, there was a time where I had a lot of shame around like, sexual activity. 
Um, my relationships are great. The other thing is like I can't at this point in my life complain about not being integrated because the only way I was able to be integrated was to be of service. Um, that's the only way I got to know people and, and that works for me because I'm really like a kind of socially anxious person and so if I have something to do with my hands and if I have a purpose, it's very easy for me to interact with other people. And so the solution for me is to always have a, perfect, a purpose when I'm doing something. If I have a purpose, then there's like really no room for me to be too uncomfortable. Um, I feel really grateful because I think um, uh, my temperament is such that like I like being of service, like I like helping other people. Um, I think that comes from coming from like a single parent household where my mom was really needy and I was essentially her therapist. Um, that's still true today. But I think what's really valuable about my relationship with her and like the nature of her codependence um, is that uh, yeah, I became a really good listener. Um, you know, there was a time where I really resented my mom. Um, you know, she was really shitty, but she uh, developed some compassion for her. You know, like through having conversations with her, I, I realized she was basically abused by every man she's ever had in her life. That she uh, was like shat on by her own family, etc. And so, looking back, I'm like, wow, she really actually did the very best that she can. Um, Another thing that I'm really grateful for is um, the family dynamics. Um, the dynamics in my family that have shifted uh, dramatically. Um, uh, for example, I have an uncle who's been a heroin addict since I was a kid. Like, I've never known him sober. And he recently, um, so he's staying at my mom's house, and she still lives in the hood. And so if she's caught with, like, a drug addict or an active user in her, her place, she'll, she'll lo basically lose her housing. Um, and so recently, like, she called me and she told me that my uh, heroin addict uncle essentially threatened her. Um, he, like, got in her face and because she was telling him, like, you need to move out or you need to get on the lease or, it's, you know, like, something has to change. Uh, so he was in her face and he was being really, really aggressive. And I told my mom, I'm like, mom, that's actually really serious. Like, you're 75, you know, and, like, he's an active user. Um, like, you know, when people are in the middle of their addiction, they'll do anything. Um, and so I had this, like, resentment toward my family, and so I wasn't talking to anyone, but I realized I had to put my shit aside to call back East and to reach out to everyone in my family to let them know, like, hey, like, Uncle Eddie is threatening mom. Um, and what I noticed, what ended up happening in all of those conversations is that my aunts started to vent to me, um, and they were telling me how that there was all this stuff, like, weighing on them, and my family never talks about their feelings. And one of the biggest resentments I've had about my family is that my family lies constantly. My mom encourages me to lie to people. In fact, my mom tells me that I shouldn't trust anyone because the only person I should trust is her, right? Like, this is the dynamic that, this is what I grew up with. And so, rounding off, um, so I reached out to all my aunts and I let them know, listen, this does not look really good. He threatened her, et cetera. And they were venting to me. Um, and in those conversations, I happened to be on the eighth step, and in those conversations, I got to make an amends for going MIA because I was upset with them. And so there were these really beautiful shifts in my family, and uh, my mom, as a result, like, they, they had all taken their distance from her. I guess I'll end by sharing that, uh, what will I end by sharing? Um, I, I mean, I guess in the simplest of terms, I really love my life, and it's not because I did anything special. Um, I think I love my life because I happen to be born an addict and an alcoholic. And as a result, I actually have this way of living my life that most people don't get. Um, I guess, and for that, I'm really grateful. Thank you.
and our last speaker, <laughs> who was actually co-chair of the speaker committee, so you can thank him for these great speakers we've had so far, David. Hi, everybody. My name is David. I'm an alcoholic. I'm honored to be at this table with my two cohorts from Living Sober. Uh, my very first Living Sober meeting was uh, the year, uh, my sobriety date is July 27, 2005, and so it was a little late to go to Living Sober that year, so I went in 2006 when it was at the um, Bill Graham Amphitheater. I don't have a huge memory of that particular meeting except for one thing that sticks in my craw in a good way. I, at, when the, if, I, I assume most of you have been in the Bill Graham Amphitheater. It's just a regular amphitheater with seating on the floor and then seating around the top. At the very end of the meeting, uh, whoever was at the podium said, uh, I want all of you people up there, all you sons of bitches up there, to come down to the main floor. So we all came down to the main floor, and, and, I said, and then he said, I want you to hold hands, and we're going to say the serenity prayer as a way to end the, 19, the 2006 Living Sober Conference. So I grab the hand of someone to my right and someone to my left. They start the um, serenity prayer. I could not say more than the first couple of words from it because I was so incredibly emotional. I'm getting that way right now. Um, I just started crying. And um, that left a feeling in my insides that, I, that has stuck with me. Um, but that was after I decided to get sober. There's, there's some interesting stuff that went on before I got sober. Um, the reason I got sober, well, I didn't really want to get sober, first of all. I wanted to get my relationship back. I, I uh, was on a business trip, and when I got back, I found out that uh, my relationship of, yes, 23 years exploded and it exploded with a note on my bed. We didn't live together. He lived in Berkeley, I lived in San Francisco. And that was, that was the end of that after, 23 year, after a 23-year relationship, which was quite wonderful. And I thought, huh, shit, now what am I gonna do? So I got to my office the following day and on my desk was a, a folder that was given to me by my partner of the time, and in it was a bunch of stuff because we were getting ready to go to another trip, but he also snuck in something from the LGBT center, which gave all events that were going on at the center, and one of them happened to be when they were holding AA meetings at the center. And I thought, ha, that's it. I'll go to AA and I'll get them back. That, you know, the, the alcoholic thinking really, really kicked in. Um, so a couple days later, I went into the LGBT center and it was room, uh, Q13 was the room. It was way down at the end of a hall. I was walking down the hallway and all I heard was laughter. Well, that's the last thing in the world I wanted to hear was laughter. So I got into the room, and in the room was a man who was just knee-walking drunk. He was screaming for fucking coffee. Where's the fucking coffee? And finally somebody said, you know, we'll just, we'll find some for you. And they took him out of the room, and that was the last I saw of him. And my mind is saying, sure, okay, fine, here I am. 
these people have, they, they have no clue what's going on with me. And there are a bunch of drunks in here. I mean, what am I doing here? So um, I have no clue what the name of the meeting was. I have no clue who most of the people were in that room. But I have still in my wallet four, four cards or four pieces of paper that had names and phone numbers scribbled on them. I, all five of us are still sober. I still see all four of those people. They still have the same phone number, which is remarkable <laughs> after all this time. And, and you know, it's just, it, it was, that was, that, that, that's, an, that's an amazing thing um, about it. Uh, a little bit of my background, I was born and raised a very spoiled child in Toronto. My father was a doctor, my mother was a nurse, my father was also a cardiac surgeon, and on top of that, my father was a raging alcoholic. So imagine having an alcoholic surgeon with the shakes coming at you to cut open your sternum and rip your heart out and do surgery. But uh, my mother was well aware that my father was an alcoholic, so uh, she used to play a game with my brother, my older brother and me, go find your father's bottles, and whoever finds the most bottles wins a prize. So my brother and I were always hunting around. We had this big barn in the back of the house. I have no idea what the fuck that barn was doing there. But, and he, he was pretty good at hiding this stuff. So we found it. We, had it. We, we, always, we always played games with each other. My brother and I were incredibly competitive. So moving, moving on forward, um, there, there's, there's not a lot of interesting stuff. I was really a pretty boring drunk. Uh, you know, it's just like the, the, the regular stuff, you drink too much, you fall down, blah, blah, blah. Although I do have to tell you one really quick story. I was living in Chicago at the time, and um, my, my first partner was off in Europe on a trip, and so I was on my, on my own, and um, I thought I'd had, I don't understand why people drink beer. It takes so long to get drunk on it. I would drink neat Johnny Walker red scotch. You know, no ice, no nothing. Just a glass of it, like four fingers of it. Knock it back, knock it back, knock it back. Then I felt better. So after doing that, I decided it would be really cool to go to one of the local neighborhood bars. Not neighborhood, but downtown. So I got in the car, uh, brilliantly, you know, after being sh getting shit-faced, to drive there. And I, I found this parking place. I was driving a little old-fashioned bright yellow VW Bug. And they, when they had the turn signals, it wasn't the light that did that. There was a little arm that came out of the side of it. Shows you how old it was, how old I am. Um, and I, part, I pulled into the parking spot, and I inadvertently and very just gently tapped the car behind me with my rear bumper. And the owner of the car was in the car that I hit. So he gets out and starts screaming at me. And uh, I said, look, look, I did nothing to the car. I only bent your license plate. You know, I'll fix it. You know, let me, let me fix it. And he just kept screaming and screaming and screaming. And then what happened to me is I'm a Leo cancer. And cancer went to hell. Leo came out. And I said, you want to see damage to your car? I'll show you damage to your car. To which point, I wrecked my right foot by kicking in the door of his car. I destroyed the driver's side door of his car. And conveniently, at that time, a police car came by. <laughs> we well, you know the rest of the story. 
So I think I'm the only person that I know of who got arrested well under the influence of, arrested for kicking, not driving, but kicking. So I do not recommend spending the night in the Cook County Jail. It's not a place you want to be. That's my only sort of exciting drunk story. Um, so let me get sober. Uh, I didn't like you at all, none of you, because you didn't have, you didn't understand me, because I was the terminally unique person. And that stuck with me for quite a while, uh, even after I got my first sponsor, because my first sponsor didn't last very long. He decided that it was probably a smarter thing for him to do. Uh, he unfortunately committed suicide about after six months after we were working together. Um, but I just, and I, then I started floundering. I didn't, I didn't quite know what to do. But all of a sudden, what I like to call God shots started happening to David. And the first one was, there's, there used to be a very large meeting at 8.30. Uh, for those of you in San Francisco, you know, the, you know the neighborhood and Most Holy Redeemer, the big Ellard Hall underneath. Uh, it was election time and, and they asked for uh, greeters. And I, I was unaware, I had no idea what a greeter was, but somehow my hand went up and I became a greeter for that meeting. And that was without a doubt the best thing that I have ever done in Alcoholics Anonymous to start my, my career. In, in this uh, fun-filled circus that we call AA. Because if you know it, people have to go by and you have to get to know the people's names and they get to know your name. And all of a sudden I thought, this is really kind of nice because we're getting to know each other. Um, and I, I, by that time I had gotten a new sponsor who was a marvelous, marvelous man. I may talk about him later, I may not, depends. Um, so I thought, well, this is a good thing. So I started getting service commitments on a lot of other meetings. Um, not because I wanted to stay sober, but because I have an ego that is way bigger than this hotel. Because David's mind said, if I don't do my service at whatever the XYZ meeting was, it's not gonna be a good meeting because I'm not there doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That may be just setting the fucking chairs up, but it's not gonna be a good meeting because David's not there. But you know what, that served me really well for a long time, and sometimes it still serves me well because I need to be reminded you know, of, of where I've been and where I'm going. So it's uh, my, one of my, is he here? I have to look first before I say it. One of my, one of my sponsees, um, he's not here, called me a service whore. And I took umbrage at it for a while, and then I thought, you know, it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse than being a service whore. Somebody else one time looked at me and pointed, accusatory, said, you're hiding out in, in, in AA. And I said, well, you know, what's the deal? You know, better hiding out in AA than hiding out in the bars. So um, I want to, I'm sort of, I'm sorry, this is not linear, uh, but I want to get to something that I want to share with you. And some of you have heard this before, and I'm not going to apologize for it because I need to hear this coming out of my mouth. I mentioned my older brother. His name is John. He was about two years older than me. And as I said, we were highly, highly, highly competitive. 
you know, whatever, whatever I would do, he would do, and so on and so forth. And we're always trying to get our, our parents to love us more, and how can we do that, and so on and so forth. So uh, we drifted apart. We drifted massively apart. We had huge fallings out, and, and, and it had to do with a lot of things that are not necessarily important to talk about. But my brother and I were estranged from each other for, you ready for this, 38 years. I feel so fucking old. Um, for 38 years, we were estranged. And um, I have two nieces. And one of one, that my one niece has become my guardian angel. A couple of years ago, she called me. And she said, Uncle David. And I said, yes. And she said, Daddy is dying, and he wants to talk to you. And I thought, OK, he can pick up the phone and call me. No big deal. He can call me. Because somehow there had been emails, legal stuff going around, and telephone numbers and, and, and email addresses were there. And I talked to my sponsor about and told him the brilliant idea about you know, having my brother call me because he's dying. And he said, you know, David, that's not really a good idea. I think probably what you should do is try to contact your brother. And I said, I don't want to do it on the phone. I can't. I don't know how to do it. And he said, well, then why don't you write him? Why don't you write him? So I, I did what my sponsor told me to do, and I wrote, I wrote him a letter. And I know enough that I, need, that I needed to pass this on to somebody else to look at first, because I have a tendency to be, believe it or not, overdramatic, too many words, so on and so forth. The mea culpas were dripping off the paper. Um, no, they were mea culpa maximas, really. And so I sent it to a friend of mine who is, who is in the program and who is, who is a writer and a marvelous editor. And I said, could you fix this for me? And he did, and he sent it to me. And, and I looked at it, and I loaded it on my computer, and I put it in uh, my, my, my file for a while, and I thought, you know, well, and, and then my sponsor said, did you mail, did you send the letter? And I said, no. He said, do it. So uh, every once in a while, I would pay attention to what my sponsor told me to do, and I thought, okay, fine. So I did. I just pushed the, pushed the send button, and it was gone, and I thought, that's the end of it. It's never going to happen, and, you know, that, that's the end of it. So um, I want to, th this is a hideously personal thing, but I'm going to read it to you anyway, what I wrote to him. It, it, it was short. This was dated the 12th of February, 2016. It says, Dear John, it has been entirely too long since we communicated, I think more than several, several lifetimes, and I felt the urge to contact you. The time has come to break the silence. I know full well that, that neither one of us is getting any younger since it's just you and me. I, <clears throat> I want to at least try. You have been on my mind recently, and the realization that I miss you has come to me very slowly. There have been many brushes with my mortality, basically through the deaths of business and, clo business and close personal friends, leaving me with a profound sense of loss I do not want to have happen between, you, between the two of us. If you'd like, possibly we could communicate. I'm willing. Think about it and let me know. So I sent that to him, and I thought, that's it. That's over and done with. And um, I thought I'd never hear from him. Well, I got in the office the following morning, and I turned on my computer and opened up my mailbox, and there was, a, there was a, something from my brother. 
And I thought, fuck. <laughs> so I called my sponsor and I said, what do I do? He said, it's simple, David, open it and read it. <laughs> and, and what happened, what happened with that little bit of magic, that thing from my brother, we started a communication back and forth. He was dying of end-stage COPD. He was a four-pack-a-day, unfiltered camel cigarette smoker for probably the last 122 million years. Um, and we started this communication, and we started talking about things. We started talking about life. We started talking about our childhood. We started talking about relatives. We just talked and talked and talked and talked. And through the magic of that, everything that we had that was in my brain was settled, and everything that was in his brain was settled. We got to the point where his, he, he, was re, he really didn't have a, a whole lot of air. So I said, if, send me a text the next time you want to talk. So we finally got to the point of, um, he would send me a text and he said, hi, it's me. I got about five minutes of air, do you want to talk? You know, which is funny, but it's also good. So the, the last time we talked is he said, this has been the most marvelous trans trans transitional thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And I don't know if we're ever gonna talk again, but I want you to know I love you. And I repeated that to him. A Couple of days later, he died. Um, I did not go back for the funeral. My niece, my niece, my God lover, my niece said, you know, Uncle David, I don't recommend you go back because you wouldn't recognize your brother at all. You probably would be happier knowing in your mind what he, what, what he was like. And that was the best advice I think I ever got. Um, it's been a marvelous, marvelous journey. And through, through what I have learned from other people in Alcoholics Anonymous, what, what I learned from my brother, what I learned from my friends in the program, what I learned from those I don't even know, and the, the most, I think, I think probably one of the most important things that I've learned, uh, and, I, and I hate this, but I don't want any of you to know me at all, because this is, this is a facade. And if I open myself up, you're gonna know who the real David is. And for the longest time, I had so much difficulty saying, help me, help me, please. I don't know how to do this. And you know what? You're the guys who helped me. You're the ones who got me through this stuff. You're the ones who got me through this shit. And if I can take what I've learned from you all and pass it on to other people, my job is good. My job is fine. And that's what, that's what I love doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it has saved my life. It has, it has been an incredible lifesaver for me. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And some of you out there, and I'll quit with this, some of you out there know that I go to a barge load of meetings during the course of the week. As a matter of fact, I counted it as 13 meetings a week. And that's a lot. But you know what? If I, and I, I need them. I need them because you guys are my medicine. And if I don't get my medicine, I'm gonna, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. So I, but I don't want to do it because I go, to, I go to meetings and I hear what, what happened to people when they did it. And I don't want to do it. So with that, I want to, I want to thank you very much for listening to this battle, battle on. And um, I am so eternally grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, for all of you that I know, and for all of you that I don't know. My very last thing out of my mouth is going to be what I heard from a, a lady a long time ago at a conference. 
I'm in a room of people that I know, but I'm in a room full of people that I don't know, but she calls them intimate strangers. We're all on the same road. We're all doing the same thing. We're just doing it differently. So thank you very much. Thank you.